Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Uh, this weekend we had our marriage retreat, and uh, we had Chris and Becky Bennett from uh, Renewal Church. Uh, Chris, the Becky, uh, Chris is the pastor of Renewal Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I, I, I heard that Jeremy got a little shout at Memphis, and Memphis is like, I get to make fun of Memphis. Uh, no, um, Chris is, as, as my kids call him, Chris is my BFF. Uh, I've known Chris for uh, seven years, and we have walked through, we, uh, Chris and Becky, uh, and we have walked through some wonderful stuff together, and we've walked through some hard stuff together, um, and uh, God has been gracious to forge a deep, deep, deep friendship uh, between us uh, and between our wives, and so I am thrilled beyond measure. Um, I told you a, couple, a few weeks ago when he was going to come, uh, Chris is a, a incredibly gifted communicator, both uh, personally in, in our friendship and as a, uh, and as a pastor and preacher. And um, it is a tremendous honor for him to be up here. And I get excited about that. It's hard to like, in, when, you, when you're responsible for this stuff, it's hard to kind of trust people to, to come and, and what are they going to say? And you're not quite sure. Um, and uh, Chris is such that I don't even care what he says, because I love that he's here. Uh, and he is uh, my good friend, and so um, I told I told you guys he's much better at this than I am. Um, but you cannot tell him because I will never hear the end of it. Uh, he will tell you uh, that this is going to be a much better week than you're used to. Um, but Chris, come on up. Let me pray for you, and then we'll we'll rock and roll. God, thank you for friendship. Thank you for my friend Chris and the life that we get to uh, encourage and challenge and support each other with. And uh, I pray that you would um, just be all over and in and through his, the words that you've given him today that I know he will proclaim, not only proclaim the good news of Jesus, but also in doing so, his desperate need and love for you. So I pray that that is at work in him and through him and that we would find a deep joy uh, in what we receive um, your good gift to us today. So we ask your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you. Don't mess up. I won't. Incredibly gifted communicator. Man, that's a lot of pressure. Um, cool. This isn't sliding down. I kept thinking, what if it slides down? What am I going to do? Um, it's good to see everybody today, truly. It really is. Um, I do love to teach God's word. Uh, more than that, I just love in any context to show people how to follow Jesus. Um, I don't know if that sounds pretentious to you. Um, um, I've what? Elevate kids. You can go to elevate. Sorry, I should have done that. Got it. You're fine. All right. If you're in elevate, K through second grade or first and second grade, if you want to go, you can go now. It's okay. It's okay. We'll do that after baptism today. Uh, uh, um, 
yeah, so where, where was I? Where was I? Uh, I don't know. But I just, I just love to show people how to follow Jesus. It's something I want to do. I, I know that it's something God's called me to do. Um, I was really glad that Trey and Allison invited us up. My wife, my wife Becky, I kn- she's shaking her head. Would you just stand? Just, just stand and wave. Just stand and wave. Would Did, th- there's a post there. Did y'all see her over there? Everybody? Okay. Okay. She tells me to do that um, every time I, the, the once every five years I speak somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it was really a privilege to be with you guys. Uh, we've never taught, like, led a marriage retreat. And so uh, we were coming up with stuff for the last couple of months, and um, I hope it was helpful. Um, and it was really great getting to know you guys, for those of you who could make it over the last couple of days. And I just want to thank you for your hospitality. I feel really really warmly welcomed here, and I'm, I'm really glad about that. I'm not surprised because I love Trey, and, and I figured that I would love you guys too. And so um, I thought, what should I preach on? And then it occurred to me, I'm doing a marriage retreat. Maybe I could talk about a wedding that took place in Scripture. And it's a story that I often go to um, when I'm feeling discouraged, uh, when I'm feeling in need when I'm feeling far away from God. Um, I go to this text a lot. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And I'm going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I want to invite you to remember that what I'm about to do right now in reading this text is the best that this service is going to get today, or at least my part. Um, Don't put the pressure on me to say something really, really good about this, but rather let's meet together at God's word in faith and trust that maybe the Holy Spirit will speak something to you. Maybe something will stand out that God will use to minister to your heart. Um, So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, I wonder why he says on the third day. Interesting. On the third day, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, I love that part, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, life was hard back in those days. 
Um, you can only imagine 2,000 years ago what life was like without running water um, and all the other things that we take for granted today. Um, I experienced that a little bit, just, just a smidge over the last month. This is actually the first Sunday in one month that I've had a warm shower, the first Sunday. Um, the first Sunday of the month that I've had a shower. I'm kidding. Um, um, our hot water heater uh, died about a month ago. And it's a long story, but through a series of very disappointing events, our new hot water heater wasn't delivered to us until three days ago. And so I felt like a cowboy. I felt like I was living in the Old West. Um, I, 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 we would fill up the sink with water. We would turn the kettle on. We would boil water. We would take it back to the room and pour water into the sink. And um, then we would uh, drink lots of whiskey at a bar. I'm kidding. We didn't do that. Um, but uh, so, and we, that's how we would bathe. We, that's how we would bathe. And um, it was awesome. There were many days my congregation didn't even know the um, disgust that my cologne was covering. And so for like one month, one month of Sundays, I have... We didn't, we didn't get to have hot water. And I'm looking back at this text here, and I'm thinking to myself, man, it must have been really hard to live back then. And you, it makes sense why, and I'm not sure this is the reason why, but it makes sense why when they had a wedding, they would party for a week. Life was rough in those parts back then. Um, it was hard. And so they would, imagine getting off work for a week and, and maybe you had to go and do some fishing or go build something or attend to your little cottage industry and then you would get to return to the wedding later that day and people are just lounging and hanging out and they're still party, part, partying and it goes on for day after day after day. Not only did weddings back then last for about a week, but it also often involved an entire village or an entire community inside a larger city. Lots and lots of people would come to these weddings. And it was nice. It was nice to get a few days off of work, you know, when you're, uh, m you know, working with mortar or you're um, uh, doing all the things that you need to do just to survive in that life. And so um, Mary comes to Jesus and informs him, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and informs him that uh, there's a problem. They've run out of wine. And she's really, really urgent about this. There's a gravity to her request for Jesus to intervene here. And it, if, if you overlay a modern wedding on something like this, then you're going to miss the point entirely and not really get why there was such an urgency here. You see, back then, there was a high, high uh, pressure to provide the most top-notch hospitality that you could muster. This was your one chance. If you had one child, this was your one chance in a lifetime to impress all of your friends and all the people in your community. There was a high pressure on it. Um, it was vital to a family's social standing that they provided the best hospitality when they had a wedding. In fact, failure could lead to public shame and ridicule in the community that you lived in. And think about uh, the consequences of that. If your family has taken on a shameful or contemptible reputation, people might withdraw from doing business with you. 
You had your own little, you know, like cottage industries. And imagine having to make your way through life and buy and sell goods and wares. And all of a sudden, people in your community are withdrawing from you and you're taking a, a hit financially. It's hard to survive when people don't want to do business with you. Not only that, it could also hit generationally. People who know that you throw bad weddings might not let their children marry into your family. And thus, the continuation of the family name might be impeded. And so there were some consequences that could take place by throwing a bad party. Lots of pressure, right? And so did you know that even the groom could be taken to court and sued if his parents threw a crummy wedding? The groom could be sued back in those days. And the couple, the couple probably out of their own superstition, would regard a bad party at their wedding as an omen for the bad luck that they would accrue throughout their married life as long as they were together. Um, so there was, a lot of, there was a lot of pressure. And so Mary intervenes. And, and the question is, well, why Mary? Why did Mary intervene in this situation and go recruit Jesus? Um, maybe Mary, his mother, his family, and Jesus' disciples had grown impatient with Jesus. And they were pressuring him to present himself as the Messiah, the savior of the lost uh, sheep of the house of Israel and of the world. Maybe they grew frustrated with that. And so he was feeling the pressure of them always leaning on him. And that's why he responded with such curtness to his mother. Maybe, we don't know. Um, maybe, this is more plausible, maybe Mary knew the family and cared for that family and wanted to make sure that this family did not suffer this social disaster. But it's also quite possible that Mary was related to the groom, which is why she took a leadership role and went and found her son Jesus, which makes sense because at this time, Joseph, her husband, is probably deceased. He was at least a decade or so older than her, more than likely. He was deceased by this time because he's just not mentioned after Jesus' early years, after his childhood years. And so she goes and gets her oldest son, who then serves as the man of the house and recruits him to try to fix this looming social disaster that this family is feeling. And then that brings up a question of why was Jesus so curt with his mom? A lot of people stumble over this. Why was Jesus abrupt with her? And, and why did it feel kind of rude? Um, saying woman wasn't something that was necessarily uh, uh, out of the ordinary, uh, people often greeted each other that way, though that was not a customary way that a son would greet his mother. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? Like, I thought Jesus came because he loved the world, and he cared about us, and, and he wanted to interact with all the ways that he could fix us and make us feel warm and fuzzy and all that stuff, and like a lot of people feel today. And why did he why did he respond this way? Why, what does this have to do with me? There's actually a more literal translation of this phrase, and it's this. What do you and I have in common? What do you and I have in common? But still, that doesn't really soften Jesus' tone uh, with his mother. It still feels kind of abrupt, maybe even rude. Forgive me, God. Just, it just seems that way. And I think it would be helpful if we focused on the final thing that he said. He said in John 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. And I think if we start there and work backwards, we can understand why Jesus spoke to his mother the way that he did. My hour 
has not yet come. There's another time that Jesus says something like this. It's in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. Um, just to give you just a little background on the gospel of John, it's my favorite gospel. Um, I love what John does with this gospel. John uh, picks out seven specific miracles that Jesus does. At the end of his gospel, he says, if I tried to record all the things that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all of the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the acts that Jesus did. So he chooses seven specific signs and wonders. The first one is this one, the turning of the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. There's another one, like you know, when he walked on water, um, when he fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish when he healed the paralytic uh, that was by a pool. Uh, there are certain signs John specifically selected because he wants to invite us into look beyond our assumptions and gaze upon the true and sufficient beauty and glory of Jesus. You see, he's writing decades later. He's probably living in a pagan metropolis called Ephesus. And he's surrounded by all of these other pagan religions. And there are people that he's ministering to that are Jewish people that have come to faith in Christ. And these people are hurting. Because a few years earlier, the Romans, um, the Romans obliterated the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God was destroyed. That was the center of Jewish ethnicity. That was destroyed and taken away from them. And they were probably wondering, whoa, I know we have Jesus, but how do we move forward knowing that our homeland has been so desecrated? And part of John's message to these people that he's writing to is that Jesus is the new walking, talking, living temple who will never, ever, ever be destroyed by any world power. You can depend on him. You can trust him. But he's also writing to people who don't know Jesus who are pagan in their background, which is why when you read the Gospel of John, John often stops for a moment and explains a certain custom so that his readers will know what he's talking about because they weren't raised with a Jewish background. And so he's ministering to these people. He's writing to them to both encourage Jewish believers and also evangelize Jews who have not yet embraced Jesus the Messiah by telling them there is a temple that is better than the one that has been destroyed, and his name is Jesus. He's the walking, talking presence of God. And also to non-believing people raised in pagan backgrounds, calling them to something far more beautiful, far more transformational than anything that this world could offer. And so he has these seven miracles that he's created, sort of the backbone of the book. But this, these seven miracles that he, uh, that, he, that, he, that he pulls out, these all take place in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. The second half of the Gospel of John takes place over one week. From John chapter 12 all the way through John chapter 21, only one week transpires. And it's the last week, the week of Passover, the week that Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, and by the end of that week, he gives himself to be killed. He's mutilated, he's tortured, he's hung on a cross, he dies a, what a seminary professor used to always say, he died a brutal, violent, bloody death. For us. And then, of course, we know that he was raised from the dead. 
But those first 12 chapters are, are the backbone of the book where he picks out seven distinct miracles that he wants to use to show us the glory of Jesus. And what's interesting, he only tells us the first two miracles, and then he leaves it up to us, the reader, to figure out what those other five miracles are. And the message behind the message, the message underneath the message is this, is that don't just glance at Jesus, look closely at him. Look into this book. Gaze upon Jesus because, especially in our world, there's a lot of people who have looked at Jesus and think they've seen everything that there is to see. And there's so much more. There's so much more to him. John's inviting us to do that with his gospel. He wrote decades after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So back on, back on the point here, my hour has not yet come. Jesus says this again in John chapter 12. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, speaking of himself, it remains alone. A grain of wheat is of no use if it's not planted. But once it's planted, that husk will split, it will begin to germinate, it will peek through that soil, and then ultimately produce fruit. He was speaking of himself. Why did he say that? What happened before that were they were at the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem. His disciples walk up to him and say, hey, there's a couple of Greek dudes that are here. They're from Greece, and they want to have a word with you. And Jesus abruptly responds and says these words. Rather than saying, hold on a second, I'll see them later. I can't talk to them right now. He just completely looks like up above his, his disciples and he says these words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's going on here? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Jesus speaking himself. He's, he's identifying some nuanced temptation that he's feeling. To resist the cross and opt for self, it seems like. And so he's, he's saying to his disciples, and I think he's also saying to himself, that I cannot, I cannot leave the path of the cross that I'm on. Why did he say this? There's this... Um, this uh, old Methodist uh, missionary named E. Stanley Jones. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he ministered in India up through mid-century and uh, died, I think, in the 70s or 80s. But uh, a prolific writer, a wonderful evangelist, shared the gospel. He started these little communities all through India where people, where children would be cared for and where people would come to faith in Christ. And he would show them how to follow Jesus and make disciples. These little ashrams, he used to call them. And, um, and, and so he wrote this book uh, probably 40 years ago, 40 or 50 years ago, called The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. And he just speculates over this text and he speculates something like this. I'm not quoting him, but he says something like this. That maybe what these Greeks had in mind, these, Greek, these, Jew, these Greeks who had embraced the Jewish faith, maybe what they had in mind when they wanted to speak with Jesus was something like this. Hey, Jesus, come to Athens. Let's take your ministry international. You'd have a hearing amongst the greatest philosophers in the world. We can, we can uh, 
push this little backwater movement that you've got to the center stage of human civilization and imagine the impact we can have. That may be completely wrong, but I think there's something to that to at least consider. That Jesus sensed this pull away from the cross toward more of, more of a pragmatic ministry where his power, his oratory could be used to build this movement and it become just that, a crossless movement that provides no eternal redemption for the people who align with his teachings. He is rejecting what so many people throughout the centuries have said about Jesus and what people even say today, that he is a good teacher. No, he is more than that. He is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. Jesus was not interested in building an app and his website and his, and his database that he could write to and blog to. Jesus was not interested in that kind of pragmatism. What Jesus was interested in was dying for us. Because Jesus is not about just giving information to us to hold in our heads, but transforming us on the inside. And that, I would submit to you, is what this first miracle about him transforming water into wine is all about. This is why he has come. It is about transformation, not just building a movement. It is transformation. And so Jesus includes his would-be followers in this too. This isn't just for him. He goes on to say this in verse 25 of uh, John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me. So now his mind is thinking not just of himself and his own path, but he's thinking of the path of his would-be followers. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, he prays. And the voice, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In other words, I have glorified my name through your ministry, and I will glorify my name again through your death and your resurrection. He's talking to us here. Jesus discerned the temptation to opt for more pragmatic ministry, influence, numbers, self. He felt the pull to live for reputation, for pleasure, for ease, for control, for power. And he rejected that. This hour obviously is He's talking about the cross. That's what he means by this hour. When he tells his mother a few years earlier at the wedding at Cana, my hour has not yet come, that's what he has in his mind. My death is not, it's not time for this yet. It's not time for me to go public in such a dramatic way and accelerate the plan that God has, the plan of redemption that he has through me. And yet, 
And yet, he had compassion on these people who were in this mess. He had compassion on these people who were in this mess. What's interesting is if you zoom out, um, there are only two times that Jesus' mother Mary is mentioned in the Gospel of John. Only twice. The first time that she's mentioned is here at the wedding of Cana. The second time that she's mentioned is when she's standing at the foot of the cross. And so there's the story arc that John creates. And the breadcrumbs that he gives us is Mary, her presence. Um, it's not that Mary knew more than we knew. It's not that Mary should be worshipped in some, some way. She's, she was a normal woman chosen by God to birth the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But John uses her life as, uh, as, as breadcrumbs, as clues to look more closely into this story, to think about this story, to think about what John's message is. Mary doesn't determine the launch of his ministry because Jesus is attuned to his father. Jesus, there's a theologian that says this, Jesus was reminding his mother that though he was her son, he was ultimately her Lord. He was ultimately her Lord, which explains why Jesus spoke with such gravity when he addressed her by saying, woman, my hour has not yet come. He was deeply serious at this moment. A couple of, a couple of observations I want to make as we sort of bring this to an end. Um, I just want to make just a little bit paradoxical here, but even though Jesus entered into this world to redeem us and to meet our needs, to meet our needs, to transform us. Um, no one is entitled to Jesus' power. Nobody is. Nobody is. And yet, Jesus is concerned with the everyday struggles that we face in this life. He cares. There was around 100 to 150 gallons of wine that he made. Now, I know, and I don't know how I know this, that, about, uh, that a gallon of wine makes up about five bottles, a little more than five bottles of wine. So Jesus created the equivalent of 500 to 700 bottles of wine. And that was long after this party started. You think Jesus cares about the little things? Is it biblical when we say things like, you know, I probably shouldn't pray about this because God's got bigger fish to fry, you know. People are starving, you know, and I'm asking for, you know, a bump and raise so I can afford my bills. Actually, God really does care about the things that are small to us. The reason God cares is because God really, really, really loves you. And God's intentions toward you are nothing but good and merciful and kind. Now, he may not answer your prayers in the way that you want him to. Um, I took over the church that I pastor now back in 2007, and uh, I was sharing with the folks at the marriage retreat this weekend. We were $8.5 million in debt when I took it over. Uh, we were in steep decline. And um, my first board meeting was when we were going to file for bankruptcy. And I, I have no business acumen whatsoever. I mean, you would not want me... You might want me to look at envelopes, but that's about it at your business. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm in way above my head. 
And I remember the prayers that I prayed in those days. I remember the anxiety that kept me awake every single night, trying to both save what I had and preserve my, my name and the community. Um, all of these layers of anxiety and fear were just, were just, I felt like I was just carrying uh, the entire planet on my back. And I remember we had this, this lake beside this retention pond that they call a lake near my house. And I'm walking around this every night and I'm begging God to deliver us, to deliver me, to fix this mess. And I wanted the church to be what it was at one time. That was my prayer. I wanted us to have 2,000 people. I wanted us to not have to get rid of our building that had 3,000 seats and an amazing sound system and the best facilities, one of the best uh, facilities in, in the city of Memphis at that time. I wanted to keep all that, and I also wanted to follow Jesus and preach his word and show people how to follow Jesus. And There was so much conflict in my heart, and I'm so glad that God did not answer those prayers. I am so glad. Emotionally, I was a mess. I had no idea how much work I needed God to do on me so that I could be a legitimate pastor and shepherd our people. I'm not talking about living a perfect life and having it all together because I don't, but I needed some big interior transformation for me to lead our church well. And had God answered all those prayers when I had first taken that church over, over those first three years, and the church had become big, I don't think I'd be standing here right now, and I don't think I would have met Trey. The only reason I met Trey was because I was invited to this pastor's cohort where we met back in February of 2015, and I was so needy and so broken and so lonely and so afraid that I needed, I needed help. I needed brothers in my life. The guy that was organizing this program that we were in um, was, is a pastor of pastors, and I just, I just wanted to give myself to something bigger than me and just let God work on me for a while. And that led me down a path of transformation that has been beautiful and painful, um, brutal and gentle, all of that. It would take me too long to describe that here. I am so grateful that God answered my prayer, but in a way that I did not need him to. Because God loves me and God cares for me. Today, our church is far from perfect. But it feels a lot like this. It feels we're deeply communal. Um, our people love one another. They are not perfect. Sometimes they yell at each other over the same stuff. Y'all are probably yelling at each other over here. Um, but, but they love each other. And for us at the end of the day, it is simply walking together as we follow Jesus in our attempt to make much of his name. I don't think that our church would, I'm not even sure our church would exist if it wasn't for that. Um, God is kind. God is merciful. God will meet you where you are. And God almost every single time will function and minister to you in a way that is totally outside of your box. It will scare you to death. And one day when you look over your shoulder and look at what he did, you'll breathe a sigh of relief and say, thank you, God, that you didn't do it the way I wanted you to. That's just how he works because he is all wise. He is all knowing. There's so much in this text. It begins with the third day. John says it was the third day. He's winking at us. He's letting us know he's got the resurrection in view. He talks about these stone jars. These stone jars were used for Jewish purification rituals, the washing of feet, the washing of hands, the washing of face. And he, Jesus used those jars that were used for washing body parts 
to put the finest wine ever made on this planet in those jars. There were six jars. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But Jewish purification rites, the number six being the number of flesh, effort, striving maybe. And John is saying through Jesus, that system of atonement has been overlapped and obliterated by the atonement that is offered in Jesus. He is perfect. They have no wine. That was John's way of describing how the Jewish purification system just could not get deep down on the inside and bring about real transformation. Jesus said, fill them with water. Jesus repeatedly spoke of himself as being water. Just a couple of chapters later, um, actually, uh, what chapter are we in again? John, I forget what chapter we're in, John 2, yeah. John 2, just a couple of chapters later, uh, John has a meeting with a woman at, at, at this well, and he tells her, he says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for water, you would ask him. Because I can put water inside of you that will bubble up forever, forever. And it'll, it'll never leave you wanting for more. Am I doing something? It'll never leave you wanting for more. And then there's the wine. Then there's the wine. Um, if you know anything about wine, I love wine. Um, something incredible happens with grape juice when it's just stored for a while. It changes. It's called fermentation. It changes at a molecular level. It becomes something different. But Jesus didn't turn grape juice into wine. Jesus turned water into wine. So you've got multiple layers of molecular transformation taking place. And again, John's winking at us. John's winking at us. This is what Jesus does in the hearts of people who come to him with open hands and are needy. Jesus transforms you. He really does. Um, I want to ask you, when was the last time that you were surprised by God? Just take a moment and think about that. When is the last time that God surprised you? Not a rhetorical question. Like, think. When is the last time God surprised you? With respect, and I mean no, no disrespect here, I'm betting that there's more than a few of us in this room right now that are scratching our heads wondering, huh, I, I don't know. In our world where we are immersed in evangelicalism, I think there's an assumption, we wouldn't say this out loud, of course, but there's an assumption, we, we pretty much got God figured out. We got more Bible studies and curriculum that we can shake a stick at. There's nothing really surprising I mean, did you walk into this service today thinking, man, God is going to blow my mind today. He is going to surprise me in a way that is totally abrupt and disturbing and, and transformational, and I just can't wait to get to church today. If you did, amazing. I want your faith, truly, truly. But I just don't think most people think that way about God. I think we take him for granted. Um, I think... Each of us have old water jars in our lives that we need Jesus to fill. We need to experience the transformation of Jesus. Um, John, the Gospel of John is an invitation to discover Jesus anew. That's what's been happening in my life over the last several years. And 
I'm really thankful for that. Um, ministry is really interesting. It's the thing that has brought me the most pain in my life. But it's also the tool that God has used to draw me closest to him. I've got this love-hate relationship with ministry. I mean, if anybody's in it, you can relate to what I'm saying. Um, Jesus is helping me to make sense of the old water jars of my past, even now. Um, the futility of my past. The inability to find transformation. I shared pretty vulnerably about some of the struggles that we had when we first got married. Mar marriage revealed um, specters of darkness in my life that I had no idea that were there. Uh, my tendency to rage, to completely lo lose it and come apart, my need to control, uh, my anxiety that was deeply rooted in my childhood. I mean, all of these things. I had no idea how toxic a person I was until I said I do to my wife. I had no idea. I knew I was messed up, but not that bad. And marriage and this path over the last, we just celebrated 25 years together, marriage over this last 25 years, this path that we've walked together has been one, it's seemingly long seasons of just the same old, same old. And then God taking my face and moving my, moving my face and look, looking this way and going, whoa, I had no idea that's how this all worked. I, I know I'm speaking kind of vaguely right now, but for me, making peace with my past has been the same thing as learning to make sense of it. Um, I didn't understand why certain things happened to me, certain traumas happened and disappointments happened in my life growing up. Um, I didn't understand why God felt totally absent when I was hurting the most. And that was maddening to me. But that madness, only by God's great grace, not because of any righteousness of my own, that madness did not drive me to despair or disbelief, unbelief. Rather, it drove me to him, searching, seeking, asking. I will never forget being a senior in high school and having spent the previous eight years surviving every single day, surviving. And finally coming to a place where I was like, God, and this is literally what I prayed, God, I don't want to serve you. This doesn't look fun to me. I don't want to do this. But I cannot continue to keep my face straight and live this way in this deep anxiety, surviving every single day. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the strength. Something terrible is going to happen to me in the future if I don't get a handle on this. And I need you. I just need you. And my relationship with God started, and it has always been a sense of need. Sometimes I've lost that sense of need. It's felt far from me. And other times through God's grace and through pain, that need has been, like C.S. Lewis said, God's megaphone to me. Um, God has been so merciful. One of life's greatest and most satisfying surprises for me was discovering that God has been with me the entire time through every pain, through every disappointment, through everything. And it was through that pain that he was shaping me. I had a friend, uh, he's a young pastor in the city. He reached out to me and several other pastors recently. What do I need to be done? I don't even know. Is it time to end church? I don't even know. Are you... You can tell me. It's all good. Is it time to end? Okay. Um, so a friend reached out to me, and um, this 
Um, and he asked me, he said, I want you and several other guys to be my accountability partners. And I was like, great, love to. I appreciated his vulnerability. And he said, here's what I'm going to work on this week, and I'd like you guys to text with me. He says, I'm going to work on fixing the pain of the past this week. I remember thinking, I don't think you're going to fix that this week. Um, I think you're going to, this is a lot longer process than you're, than you're anticipating. Um, and I just remember thinking, reflecting on God's works in my life and how I used to pray that God would help me to move away from the pain of the past and deliver me from the vices that came to me through that pain. And now I look at that and I can see God's presence in those times and how God used that pain to shape inside of me longings for him that I would not have without it. I don't know if that sounds like good news to you because I know that's scary. I know that's scary. There's a reason why Jesus said, this is the narrow way. But I will say this, it is the only way. It is the only way. The whole thing ends with Mary telling servants, do what he tells you to do. We think that faith begins with having 100% assurance and then living for Jesus based on 100% assurance, and that's not how it works. That's not faith. Whatever size that your faith is, even if it's that big, you have a starting point to move toward God. I tell our church all the time, faith looks like something. It's not just a thought in your head. Faith is reliance and dependence on Jesus. And God may be asking you to do something, to step out. Maybe you have abstained from really connecting deeply in your local church because you just don't think you're worthy of doing that yet or you're, you're not at a place where you should do that. I'm going to tell you whatever faith that you have that God has given to you, step out on that and seek after Jesus because Jesus loves you and Jesus wants to transform you. He really does. Um, and that's all I've got to say. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you. Thanks for this time that we have together. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. I just want to say again that I need you. We all need you. And I pray that each of us, each of us in this room would experience your transforming power. I pray that our lives really would, our inner person really would be like that water that you turned into wine. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.